The tabloids were selling crime, they were selling sex, they were selling celebrity. And this was an era where, for the first time, you could become famous just for being famous. This is Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing McGarry. Welcome to the podcast version of the radio program that broadcasts Wednesdays on WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. You just heard best-selling author Glenn Stout, who has a new book, Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid. Real fiction explores the real and imaginary forces that fuel stories and reporting. I talk with authors and journalists about their books, essays, and articles. We discuss the global issues and intimate human details that bring history, current events, and fictional settings to life. As this program has evolved, Real Fiction places a special focus on journalism, reporting, editing, because let's be honest, almost no one agrees on what journalism means in today's world. We have a great guest today. I just learned that a criminal couple from Baltimore fueled the 1920s tabloid industry that became known as jazz journalism. Best-selling author Glenn Stout's new book, Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid, brings to life America's original gangster couple whose wild crime sprees during the Roaring Twenties and Prohibition might otherwise have been lost to history. This conversation is an extended version of the original broadcast episode. I'll be back in a moment with Glenn Stout. True crime is one of the most consumed genres in the world. Podcasts, news articles, television. But until now, America's original gangster couple from the 1920s remained largely forgotten. Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid is a newly released book introducing readers to these young gangsters, Richard and Margaret Whittemore. Joining me today is the author, Glenn Stout, a best-selling writer and regular contributor to media outlets. His latest book examines the fascinating lives of headline-making gangsters in Jazz Age America and the rise of tabloid journalism. Author Glenn Stout has worked as a janitor, a painter, a minor league baseball ticket seller, and a construction worker. He has been a full-time writer since 1993. And if you've listened to this program before, you know that I love to explore the intersection between real and fiction. So gangsters and jazz journalism in a meticulously researched work of history is pretty much a dream topic for me. So joining me from Vermont to discuss this thrilling new release is Glenn Stout. Glenn, welcome to Real Fiction. Thank you very much, Lori. Again, the title of the book is Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid. I knew immediately when I saw it, I wanted to read it. Um, It refers to America's original gangster couple. And we get really an exhilarating account of jazz age and prohibition era America. And at the center of your book, we meet Margaret and Richard Whittemore. They are a young couple from working class Baltimore. And through a life of crime and tabloid headlines, they become known as Tiger Girl and Candy Kid. And they predate Bonnie and Clyde by about a decade. How did you learn about them, Glenn? 
Well, I learned about them through their name. Uh, about 15 years ago, I was researching another book, Young Woman in the Sea, my biography of Gertrude Ederly, the first woman to swim the English Channel, and I kept encountering headlines that mentioned Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid, and I was intrigued. So I started setting some of those aside, and while I was researching that book, started reading articles about Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid, and I was immediately hooked, not only because of the the romance of their two nicknames, but also the more that I read, the more that I learned that they intersected with so many different aspects of the 1920s in a really interesting way, and that they had been widely popular. I mean, for a period of time, five or six months in 1926, they were probably the two best-known people in the United States, you know, as well-known then as, say, Kanye and Kim Kardashian are today. (laughs) And I wondered why I had never heard of them before. And as a writer, if I'm curious about something and it piques my interest, I figure it may pique the interest of readers. So at that time, I decided that uh, I would write a book about them. You write in the book that eight days after their wedding, Richard was arrested and Margaret temporarily went back to live with her parents, and you'd think that this might be an eye-opening you know, account of what marriage might be like to this man, but <laughs> this did not dissuade her. In fact, she, I think, longed for him even more while he was uh, in jail. So their crimes together started out typical for the era, booze, cash robberies in Baltimore, and then they started escalating. What what can you tell us about their crime trajectory and what they were involved in and, and how it escalated so quickly? Well, you know, Richard had always been kind of a petty theft and he'd been in trouble as a young man and they were grammar school sweethearts. So when he finally gets out of prison, uh, when he's finally in prison for the first time as an adult, they get married. And this is just after World War I, a pandemic and an economic depression. He can't find work. So he decides, I think the quote from his, if society is going to lay like a snake in the grass for me, I'm going to go after everything I can get. Mm -hmm. And that's what he decides to do. He's not very good at it. So he gets caught in a burglary a week after they get married. But while he's in prison, he is befriended by these two brothers, the Kramer brothers, who were already legends. They invented the can opener and they had crack safes in Europe before they were deported and then escaped and came to the United States. And they met Richard Whittemore in prison. And they knew that they couldn't crack safes when they got out of prison because everyone would know it was them. But they still knew that they wanted to go after jewels, diamonds, precious gems. And they looked at Richard Whittemore, who was young, amoral, tough, (laughs) and they decided he would be their muscle. So together, they decided that when they all got out, uh, they would embark on this on this life as jewel thieves, because the Kramers were extraordinarily good at insinuating themselves into the the jewel trade. They knew jewelry. Uh, they would be the brains. They would do all the planning, and they would leave it to Richard and some other gang members to execute those plans. And Margaret was along for the ride. Richard promised her nice things, wonderful clothes. And for a young woman of that time period, where the United States, uh, 
you know, we're entering the age of media and celebrity and all of a sudden everything is electrified and you can go out at night and prohibition is fueling excess behavior of all kinds and people are spending money like water. Well, that sounds pretty good because how else are you going to get those things? You can be a bootlegger, but that's actually a lot of work. But if you become a thief and you kind of skim off the top of society during a time of prohibition and start stealing things, well, that's a little quicker route to get to where you want to be. And they were so good at it. Uh, there's a line in the book that I, I just love, and I think it represents the kind of hedonistic times. Getting ready to play a part in a crime was almost like being in the movies. So as you just described, Glenn, it wasn't long before they they escalated into theft that could lead to real money and a wonderful lifestyle. So they, they were living a glamorous well-heeled life in New York City. They held court in jazz clubs all night long. Margaret went from wearing inexpensive clothes that she wore as a telephone operator when she was making $20 a week to buying high fashion, the best that money could buy. Um, you, oh, I just loved reading about the clothing and the apartment life. It's so specific. How did you, how did you research that aspect of uh, the story? And again, what, what really fueled their lust for the high life? Well, I think what fueled their lust for the high life is what they were seeing in the movies and what they were mm. seeing in America's first age of celebrity where, you know, people like Rudolph Valentino were, were in the papers and you, you saw the wonderful life that they lived. And, you know, for how Margaret was dressed and everything, I, I do have some photographs of her. The press loved describing what she wore because it was like a fashion model showing up at court or being interviewed by the police, and they would describe in excruciating detail what she was wearing. And, you know, and their lifestyle, you know, Richard was written about while he was in the nightclubs by some of the uh, reporters for the tabloid press that covered New York and cabaret society. You know, so that was all there. And, you know, where they lived, they lived in a building called Chester Court, which was one of the high-end residence hotels in New York at the time. And that building still exists. And in fact, the, the building website includes a prospectus from 1926 for residents that shows photographs of the building and layouts of apartments and describes how, you know, electrical appliances are already in there. In fact, we even have lights in the closet. So oh, wow. I'm able to describe, you know, the challenge with any book, where you're writing history is to take what could be a one or two dimensional story and snapping it into three dimensions. And so you go into cultural history as you need to, to bring out those aspects of your characters that help flesh them out, that help turn them into three dimensional figures with personalities who are intersecting with the world. You're not just writing about people. You're also writing about a time and you're writing about a place. And that's what I try to do in my research is to bring in as much as I can to bring them to life, to make them appear cinematically rather than static. No question that this would be a draw for selling newspapers. And you write that in Baltimore, tabloid journalism began to thrive 
with the debut of the Baltimore Post, roughly in 1922, and nothing sold quite like crime. And of course, Richard and Margaret um, grew up in Baltimore, so they were part of the Baltimore scene. And um, jazz journalism is a term applied to tabloids of this era. And I confess, I just did not did not know that. So this is truly fascinating to me. The tabloids profited from this couple. And for me, this kind of imagery between what's real and what's fiction was landing on the pages of these daily newspapers. So I'd love to hear from you what you discovered about the editorial policy. Sure. The tabloids were selling crime, they were selling sex, they were selling celebrity. And this was an era where, for the first time, you could become famous just for being famous, you know? People mm. were sitting on top of uh, poles for three or four days. They were swallowing goldfish. They were performing all these stunts. And the tabloids realized that there was an appetite for this. There was just an appetite for people who were well-known. And criminals fit that to a T. What was interesting about Tiger Girl and Candy Kid is most of the criminals up to that point were male. This mm -hmm. was a married couple. Not only a married couple, but a married couple <laughs> with great nicknames. They were young, <laughs> yes. they were attractive, they were successful. You know, they weren't robbing to save money for a rainy day so they could live and have a white picket fence. They were robbing so they could have a lifestyle. They spent the money as quickly as they got it. They lived as garish a lifestyle as they possibly could. And the tabloids realized that at the time, you know, the 1920s are known as a, as a time where a lot of people had a lot of money. Well, that was great if you were one of those people who had a lot of money. Everybody else didn't have a lot of money. And if you were working class, you saw this lifestyle, but it was out of reach. Richard and Margaret lived the life that a lot of other working class kids wanted. Maybe they didn't get there the way they would get there, but they got there. And that made them anti-heroes to an entire generation of flappers and sheiks. That's the term for a flapper's boyfriend, a sheik. And they were wildly popular. Uh, you know, when Richard went on trial and when he was being brought through train stations, you know, crowds of hundreds and hundreds of people showed up just to see him. And when they waited for Margaret to come into the courtroom with bated breath, what's she going to wear? What's she going to look like? And the tabloids exploited this. And because the tabloids exploited it, the more staid traditional papers, the Baltimore Sun in Baltimore or the New York Times in New York, they had to cover them as well because they had to respond to the pressures of sales. So, for mm -hmm. example, in New York City, they're covered by the tabloids, by the New York Daily News, but over about a six-month period, they're on the front page of the New York Times 40 different times. That's extraordinary. It just shows the degree to which how popular they were and how much the newspapers were fighting each other for readership. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't stop reading this book. And I love the the reference that you make um, that said, uh, the public couldn't get enough of the fallen flappers, which of course, Margaret was at the time. How, Glenn, how did they get their nicknames, the Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid? Right. Well, Tiger Girl had been the name of a, of, of a movie, Tiger Girl, or Tiger Lil, and then it was changed to Tiger Girl. There was a song of that title, but it 
was adopted on the West Coast in the early 1920s to describe flappers gone bad. There was a particularly notorious crime huh. where a 16-year-old girl, her mother wouldn't allow her to go out dancing, so she killed her with a hammer, and they called her Tiger Girl. After that, any flapper gone bad was likely to be given that name. And when Richard and Margaret were arrested together for the first time in an apartment building, uh, the police busted in, the gang turned off the lights, and it was Margaret who handed out the guns. So they called her Tiger Girl. Richard didn't get his name until somewhat later, until they were arrested for the last, until he was arrested for the last time. And Candy Kid fit him like a glove because it referred to someone who was a sweet talker, could talk a girl into anything. He had the gift of gab, a candy kid. Mm. But candy is also slang for drug use, cocaine, and opium. And the gang did use cocaine and opium. And candy is also slang for jewelry, for gems, particularly diamonds. So candy kid fit Richard Whitmore like a glove. And once the tabloids had Tiger Girl paired with candy kid, well, that was a dream come true. This wasn't just a, a crime. This was a romance. And they could sell the romance. And they fell for the story just as I fell for the story when I first encountered those two names in newspaper headlines. And the, the fact that Margaret was passing out guns um, adds such a incredible dimension to this this era and, and these crimes. Glenn, can you walk us through a typical crime, uh, the chain of command? And at one point, this couple had a broader group working with them. I think they became known as the Whittemore Gang. Yeah. The, the basic way any of their jobs would go down is the Kramer brothers would identify the target, whether that was a jewelry store or whether that was a jeweler who might be walking down the street with gems. And they would case it out. And they knew the jewel industry. So they knew how much things were worth. And in fact, they would even go to a fence. They had a favored fence. They'd work out the details of how much they were going to get in advance. So they weren't, you know, robbing and then searching for a fence and taking what someone would give them. They'd have all, all, that all worked out. They might send a member of the gang, maybe Margaret, maybe one of the other gang members into that store ahead of time just to case it out because the Kramers themselves couldn't go back too often. But they'd start to case it out, and they would determine how many employees there were, when the place opened, when was the safe open, usually at the beginning of the day when they were taking jewelry trays out to put on display. So they would case that out. Then they would call the gang together. They would organize everything down to the minute. You're going to drive. You're going to carry a gun. Margaret's going to go to the train station and pick up the guns because in New York at the time, there was a law called the Sullivan Act, which meant if, if you were caught with a weapon, you were probably going to go to jail, particularly if you'd been arrested before. So it was safer to have Margaret, who hadn't been charged with any crimes before, we're going to have her carry the guns. You know, she's just a woman. <laughs> Even if she gets caught, she's probably going to be able to bat her eyes and get out of it. And meanwhile, the other gang members wouldn't be in jeopardy. So Margaret would go get the guns. They'd gather together. They'd have the crime plotted out. And then it would go down like clockwork. They would burst in. Everyone would know precisely what they were going to do. You're going to tie them up. You're going to stand by the door and keep watch. You're going to go in the safe and take everything. And the crimes would go down like clockwork. They'd be in and out in a minute or two. And they did this in jewelry stores. In one instance, they did it on the street where they 
cased this uh, this jeweler for weeks because they knew he was going to be receiving a shipment of diamonds, and they attacked him on the street and within 10 seconds had the diamonds and were gone. They plotted out the escape routes for the cars. They didn't leave anything to chance. Then after they would divide up the money, the gang would tend to scatter and wait for the Kramers to call them again. So they operated with impunity for about six months. The police didn't even know really that there was one gang performing all these operations. They knew that there were... (laughs) you know, gang stealing jewels, they didn't put two and two together and realize it was the same people for a long time. As you said before, it was a level above the the booze and the and the cash theft that were fairly common at the time. They were in their own category of a crime spree. Right. And you said that um, it was a while before the police department figured out who was doing this, how this was happening, but eventually things would catch up with them. You write that there was a strong connection between the New York Police Department and the press. Sure. And that they actually cultivated reporters. Right. Well, you know, they needed good press too. The police needed good press because this was prohibition. Everybody thought they were crooked. In many instances, they were. So when they did, you know, make a big bust, they wanted to brag about it. And when they captured the Whittemore gang and started putting two and two together and realizing what they had and hauling in Tiger Girl and pairing Tiger Girl with Richard Whittemore, when they were, you know, interviewing these guys, they brought the press in. In fact, it was a Boston newspaper man that identified Tiger Girl and said, hey, that's Tiger Girl, (laughs) because Mm. he he saw that they were grilling her. And, you know, they use that for political means, you know, to show how effective they were. It's interesting, too, that at a certain point after the gang is arrested, Richard wonders what's going to happen to Tiger Girl. And so he blurts out, I'll tell the whole works as long as you'll let her go. And that's the real instant that Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid were born Because now you had this added element. You had Richard, who wasn't just some, you know, dastardly crook, but he was he was falling on his sword for his beloved wife. And you had Margaret, who wasn't just a gun mole, but she was devoted to her husband, you know, he of love everlasting. And now the newspapers could sell their romance. And then that really elevated. That's when they became a coast to coast story. It was at that point that the Candy Kid had achieved a high level of notoriety, and you're quite right. It was that combination of the romance and the crime and and just that, that story quality. Um, is it your feeling that Margaret added such a dimension to him that, that Candy Kid may have just been another one of the hundreds of gangsters in New York and Baltimore, but she added that sort of high-level dimension to him? Oh, absolutely. They they both enhanced the other. You know, in the eyes of, of, of each other, they were both elevated. You know, she became more attractive, I think, to the Swains who, who followed the story. He became more attractive to the Flappers because of the romance involved. And, you know, everybody wanted to know everything about them. Uh, you know, when they would go into court, it was like, are they going to be allowed to kiss? 
you know, right, <laughs> and this, right. would be, this was reported, you know, as this was as important as whether anybody was innocent or guilty. Are they going to be allowed to kiss? You know, is Tiger Girl going to get to visit him? You know, is Richard really going to spill the beans? And it just set up all this speculation in the press. So that was a story you could write every day, whether anything was happening or not. And it didn't help from the authority standpoint that at, at a certain point they decided they wouldn't just keep Richard in a cell, but they'd keep him in a mesh cage. They were so worried that the gag <laughs> might try to break him out. So there's this wonderful photograph of Margaret leaning up against the mesh cage with her hand over the mesh over Richard's heart. And you could hardly see him because he's behind this mesh cage. Well, that picture was worth a thousand headlines because it told the entire story, the devoted woman and her poor incarcerated husband, you know, the victims be mm. damned. Nobody in the tabloid press really cared about them at all. They were selling the story of the romance. They sold a lot of stories. And uh, tell us about a man named Frank Dolan. He was one of the star tabloid journalists of the day. Was he breaking some of these stories? Yeah, Frank Dolan uh, covered the Whittemores for the New York Daily News. And the New York Daily News was the preeminent tabloid of the day, uh, I would say. And Frank Dolan covered the Whittemores, along with you know some other famous reporters at the time. A man named Mark Hellinger uh, was very important, too. And what was interesting to me was to see that after the 1920s ended, Frank Dolan and Mark Hellinger and all these other tabloid reporters, what did they do? They all went to Hollywood. What did they do in Hollywood? They wrote screenplays. They produced films. They created the gangster films of the 1930s about the criminals of the 1920s. So when mm -hmm. I watch a gangster film in the 1930s today, whether it's uh, you know the Roaring Twenties or White Heat or Public Enemy, I see elements of the Candy Kid and Tiger Girl in every single one. I mean, even in uh, the uh, Rosalind Russell film uh, with Cary Grant about, it's not bringing up baby, it's um, His Girl Friday. In His Girl Friday, you see the Earl Williams who's going to be hung. He's kept in a mesh cage. Where did they get that from? I think they got it from Tiger Girl. I'll have to look up one of those films and uh, look at it with, with fresh eyes now. But yet they never told directly the story of Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid. And I think that's because she was still living and they would have had to deal with her had they tried to tell that story as a uh, as truth. So they told fictional stories about gangsters and uh, didn't have to didn't have to pay Margaret a premium. And I'm going to ask you about Margaret and what happened to her in a moment. Um, I don't want to lose one thought that has come come to me uh, about Richard. And I mean, Richard was incarcerated a number of times. And there's another uh, stream in your book that is really interesting history. And uh, you write that a brief era of penal reform in which prisons were a place not as punishment but of preparation for productive life outside the prison walls was dead. What did you learn about prison life? And one, how, how did it fuel the criminal underground? And after studying Richard so extensively, do you feel like there was any hope that Richard could have lived a law-abiding life? 
Well, I learned a lot about prison life because there were, what, what happened, which was really fortunate, was there was an ex-journalist who was incarcerated at the Maryland State Penitentiary at the same time as Richard Whittemore, who mm. wrote a series of exposés about the uh, Maryland State Penitentiary and described life in the penitentiary in excruciating detail, which was really helpful. And when Richard was in there, they had the contract system. So you'd, you'd work for a company almost as a slave while you're in the prison, but at least you had something to do. That all ended when Richard broke out. And Richard broke out by killing a guard. He brained him over the head with a lead pipe. And in reaction to that, Maryland, the Maryland authorities ended all penal reform in the Maryland State Penitentiary. All of a sudden, you weren't allowed to work. You were staying in your cell all the time. So, you know, thanks a lot, Richard. Uh, he, he didn't do his fellow prisoners any favors, but they were they were just terrible, terrible places. Let's let's not be shy about that either. It was no place uh, where you'd want to be. I mean, Richard went into the system for playing hooky when he was about ten. And he came out a stone cold killer. Could Richard have, uh, you know, lived a different way? He was certainly smart enough to do so. He certainly had the social skills to do so, but he had no desire to do so. I never get any remorse or any guilt from him whatsoever. You also don't get any of that from Margaret. She was mm. not as materially involved in the crimes as Richard was, yet she materially benefited from them. And even after, you know, he's arrested and he's going on trial and everything, she never really expresses much regret at all. You know, she was in it for the ride. And it's, it's important to remember, too, they were so young. They were like 22, 23, 24 years old. They were just kids. And, uh, you know, if, you know, my wife's a special educator, they should talk about the frontal lobe controlling, you know, thinking <laughs> into the future. I don't think their frontal lobes were working very hard at the time. As you said, they were so young. I mean, they lived so much life in a short period of time, at least their crime spree years, that I had to remind myself how young Richard was when we sort of get to his um, fate. Uh, I don't want to talk too much about that because I think this is something that the reader should experience. Um, but I'm going sure. to leave that up to you to reveal maybe a little snippet about Richard's fate and how, how do you put his life into context? Well, let's just say that it does not end well for Richard Whittemore. Okay. <laughs> uh, and the and the, re and the reader can discover that on, on his or her own. Um, he's buried today in an unmarked grave and uh, would be, I think, utterly forgotten had it, not been, had it not been for Margaret. Now, Margaret's kind of interesting because his ploy worked by confessing, even though he really didn't confess to very much, the police did not pursue charges against her and she never went to jail. And she went on and continued to live her life What's interesting is, you know, she was courted by some wealthy men for a couple of years. There was speculation that maybe she had money hidden away or jewels hidden away. But then she ends up marrying an old friend of the family uh, who's about 15 years older than her. And she just recedes back into the working class life that she, she grew up in. She had a daughter. Um, they were married. Her husband died in the 1950s. And Margaret just lived a very quiet, private life for the rest of her life. I did make contact with her daughter, who is still living, who was asked and then chose not to um, 
participate. She was very, very polite. I don't know the degree to which she knows what her mother did or not. I don't identify her in the book because I think she deserves her privacy. Uh, I did make contact with some other relatives who, who told me one interesting thing that it's not in the book, but he said that he did meet Margaret at one point when she was quite old. And apparently she was, she was deaf. It was hard to communicate with her. He did say, though, that for an elderly woman, she still had a swagger. <laughs> so, ah, uh, which I think did. is yeah, which I think is wonderful. You know, she, as far as I know, she never participated in any crime. She lived a quiet life, raised her daughter. That's all she wanted to do. Uh, her gravestone consists of one single word, and it says "mother," um, mm-hmm. which I think you know maybe her frontal lobe did come into uh, <laughs> come online, and, and it took and a while, the, but it did. Yeah, it did emerge. <laughs> did finally emerge. Uh, Oh God, that's yeah. It's it's fascinating how one could be at the center of uh, such a heady lifestyle in New York and then uh, return to a quiet life. And there's no mention of this in her obituary when she passed away. No, none whatsoever. But you have to remember too that in in the wake of the Roaring Twenties came the Depression, and everybody who had something lost it all. So there was really nothing unique about Margaret losing it all. Everybody lost it all. Everybody had a hard time. Everybody had to scramble and struggle and start all over again. And there were no, you know, there were no opportunities uh, post-1920 to do what she and Richard did in the 1920s. But boy, for a brief period of time, they burned the candle at both ends and they, uh, they experienced the roaring 20s at its loudest. I want to remind listeners that my guest today is Glenn Stout. His newly released book is titled The Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid. And again, this is insight into the jazz age, the criminal underworld that fueled America's fascination for true crime stories. Glenn, what do you hope readers will take away from this book? You know, I hope they take away some insight uh, into the time period. And I don't excuse what Richard and Margaret do or what they did. But I hope they take some understanding about maybe why people embark on lives like Richard and Margaret did. What happens when all the other doors are closed? That's what I think is important. And then just to, you know, you do get a chance to experience what the 1920s were like. And I think that's a time period that is really the first decade of the modern age, one we still live in today, where we're obsessed with celebrity. You know, we obsessed with movies and recorded music and everything seems within reach, but it's only within reach if you have money. And, you know, that's this says what can happen when that goes awry. As I mentioned uh, in the introduction, this is uh, just one of your latest books. You have written many. You have a particular expertise in sports history, baseball. So this is a a really interesting departure from your previous work. I wonder if you could share something with the listeners about what you're working on next. I'm really not sure what I'm working on next. I'm I'm kicking around a few ideas um, of stories, again, that I encountered while researching this one. Um, Again, I think if if a story intrigues me enough to start poking around at it, I mean, it was a 15-year journey since I first encountered this story until until it finally came into print. I hope it's not going to be as long for the next one. But uh, <laughs> I, I look for those stories that, uh, that pique my curiosity, that allow me to dive into a place and a time 
and learn about it because uh, um, that's what we're here on the planet for, right? Is to is to learn about different people and to learn about different times. And if I find uh, uh, a couple of characters that offer me the same opportunity, I'll certainly look forward to writing about them. Well, again, the book is Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid. The author is Glenn Stout. Well, Glenn, I can't thank you enough for joining Real Fiction today. Thank you very much, Lori. I enjoyed it. You've been listening to Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. You can find out more about today's author guest at glennstout.com. All episodes and guest profiles are archived on realfictionradio.com. Please subscribe to the program wherever you get your podcasts, and let me know what you think of the episode. Thank you for listening.